Number four, three cosmic messages, second quarter, 2023. John Pauline. Welcome to another session of Pineal. We are in the second quarter of 2023. Three cosmic messages. And today we are going to discuss lesson four, fear God and give glory to him with John Pauline leading out on this discussion. But before we begin, Nancy Wageman is going to pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the evidence we see of your wisdom and majesty in the book of nature and the Bible. And the small, beautiful monarch butterfly who can migrate up to 3,000 miles every fall, it's amazing. And we even see more of your majesty and power through the new James Webb Telescope as more vast space and countless galaxies are being revealed. So please help us now and guide us as we open and study your book, the Bible. Help us look and understand a little higher, a little wider at the realities of life that you have for us there, which you, again, are the main one. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In our previous session, we talked about Revelation 14, 6, the everlasting gospel and the audience to which it is addressed. And now we're getting into verse 7 of Revelation 14, and that is regarding the message of the first angel, which begins with fear God and give glory to him. So our topic will be just that, fear God and give glory to him, seeking to understand what these terms mean in scripture. As we begin, let's take a look at 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed. All right, that's a description of the very end of time, end of human history. And the question I have, number one, right at the beginning, is the end of the world more or less believable than it was a couple hundred years ago? What do you think? Mike? With the benefit of things like the Hubble Space Telescope and now the Jim Webb Telescope, physicists and astronomers have a better idea of what's going to happen in the future. And at some point in time, our sun, which is a star, is going to expand and eventually will consume the Earth. It'll expand so much, it'll actually consume the earth. So that alone tells us it's going to be destroyed in what we might call a heavenly fire. If it doesn't happen by us doing it to ourselves sometime beforehand, say with nuclear weapons or something like that. All right. Anyone else? Is the context in which we live make the biblical picture of the end of the world more or less believable? Larry? Well, a hundred years ago, World War I was underway. And some other interesting things that were happening in the world, the rise of the industrialization and all of the massive shifts and things that were happening. So I suppose to the people of that time, it seemed that way. The one thing that I have observed is that when I talk to people who are approaching my age or older, I think people who are generally 73 generally see the end of the world because we have a reference of how change has happened. And in every generation, I believe there have been changes 
as a person nears the end of their life to when they look back at whatever, even if when people lived for 800 years. At the early stage of their life, they can see some level of progression because it's evident in the history of the Bible that there has been a progression. So I'm going to say every generation has its own end of the world drama that unfolds, you know, Spanish flu and World War I hundred years ago. So yes, they were experiencing the end of the world as they knew it. Go ahead, Henry. I would think that the answer to that question will depend on the audience. Because if what I have always believed is going to happen, I am convinced of that. The circumstances of today won't change that. Even if everything becomes peaceful or more benign or whatever, if I have always believed and my belief is based on the person that, that has announced that event, it is not going to change. The circumstances, the events of today should not affect and if I have never been convinced, regardless of what happens, I wouldn't be willing to believe on it. It happened during the time of Jesus. It happened during the time of the apostles. They write about it. People that are unbelievers, that they, I don't think that things are going to change every, at any moment. So I think that the question probably should be, are we are making God more believable? Because if we are showing that he is more worthy of trust, then people may start believing on those events, not based on the circumstances, but based on the one that announced them. All right. Thank you. Lou? Well, in our church, there's actually a lot of skeptics who says, yes, I've heard that forever, that Jesus is coming soon, and he hasn't. But right now, I hear people out in the world saying something's going on. There's a change. Things are happening. They feel it. They see it. It just seems like it's in the air. And only God knows the time, of course. And like Henry was saying, it doesn't matter if we're in a car wreck or we have a heart attack. For us, it'll be the next time we open our eyes. So it's not about getting scare tactics and building bunkers and all that kind of stuff because of what lies ahead. But it's just about trusting every day and being filled with the Holy Spirit. So whenever it is, that we'll be ready and not complacent and just saying, well, you know, they've said that forever. And so I think that is the risk of becoming complacent. And that's not a good position to be in any day. The various comments I've been listening to remind me that the Bible doesn't have a singular picture of the end. There are texts that talk about multiplying chaos toward the end, and there are texts that say, oh, it's when they're crying peace and safety. It's when they're marrying and giving marriage. And when everything is normal, it will come as a surprise. So the scripture is open to either kind of end, which means probably it isn't going to be as predictable as we would like, and it may come in a surprising way. Chris? I don't quite have that 65-year-old threshold to make, but I will say that I'm surprised at the things that are happening worldwide and United States politics as it seems to be unfolding right now. To me, those seem to indicate that it's closer, closer than definitely before. I've been quite surprised at what's happened the last couple of years. All right. Very good. The lesson then in that context wants us to go to verse 7. And why don't we read it at this time? Revelation 14 and verse 7. He said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. 
for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And number two of your handout, it says, fear God must be very important, since the phrase constitutes the first words out of the first angel's mouth. The English word fear generally means something along the lines of terror, but the Greek and Hebrew words for fear have a broader meaning. So what exactly is the first angel calling on people to do when it says fear God? Could it be to take him serious? Take him serious. Respect, but take him very serious. It's very real. Okay. To reverence him. So we have ideas like reverence, take him seriously, respect. Okay, Bill? I'd say it's to revere him, to honor God. Okay. And then Larry? Reading Robert Alter's version of Proverbs. and Proverbs 8.13, he says, The fear of the Lord is hating evil which is very similar to some of the phrases and comments we're going to come to later as we go. And as I've been reading in Heschel's book, God in Search of Man, he has a chapter entitled Awe. And the concept that he develops there is so astounding to me about what it means to be awed by God. When you look at how the Jewish faith worships on Sabbath, and the amount of joyful movement and things that go on, except during the reading of the Torah. It is interesting that Heschel refers to awe as what a child or what anyone experiences that holds their attention to the point that they think of nothing else and that they're willing to listen and pay attention to what is happening. Fear does not produce that kind of response. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, go ahead, Jane. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. Because if we are in absolute trust in God and fearing him, it's, well, we struggle as human beings, but it's hard to still stand in evil at the same point. So I believe to fear the Lord is to hate evil in our human capacity. Yes, and they're very much part of the biblical context. Rodney? Yeah, those of us who plant this interesting tree, the papaya tree, we try to see that when it ripens, it begins from the tip and it ripens up to the stalk. When it reaches the stalk, when it is overripened, it falls down. So... It tells us that this world will be ripened sometime with evil, and then it's going to fall down. So uh, fearing God is those who will do the opposite. When the world is being full to the brim with evil, there will be people that will be, instead of evil, there will be having full respect and reverence, living the way the Lord wants his people to live. Appreciate that. Thank you. Henry. I sometimes have uh, difficulties with trying to apply meaning to some of these words because I was born in an Adventist home. Everything has been Adventist around me until I went to college because we didn't have the option to have uh, SDA colleges in my country, 
But many times we look through this through our religious background. But if a person that has absolutely no background in religion reads these texts, they are not going to find anywhere fear as reverence because we speak English and fear only has one meaning in English. So it is very important to create a context. It is very important to explain multiple things and not just reading this verse isolated or this book isolated, because without the context, I won't have all the information that I need to make a decision of how to understand this. That's why it's so important, as Ron Maxwell used to say, to start from the beginning, because this book was given at the end with this type of messages, and it's the 66, because there is a lot more information that is necessary in order to make sense of this. Other than that, it's fear. Fear is fear. Be afraid. Something bad is happening. And only our religious background makes us believe that we can tell somebody else, oh, take it as reverence, or oh, and uh, you will say, yeah, I get you, really. Yeah, so that's my comment. All right. And, and this is where I think sometimes the modern translations come in, where they'll use terms like honor or reverence, and you don't even have to fight that battle because it's not being confused by the English <laughs> nearly so much. Let's go to Proverbs 9, because I think we're absolutely right that the one who fears God is one who will, by nature, seek to avoid evil. But there's another definition that may be even more interesting for us. Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. All right. One of the methods of Hebrew poetry is parallelism, a specific parallelism, where you, instead of rhyming or even rhythming, it is a parallel of ideas. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. It's very obvious what the parallel is there, right? Wisdom and understanding, two ways of saying exactly the same thing. You go to the other half of this poetic pair, the fear of the Lord is parallel to what? The knowledge of the Holy One. In other words, that person will fear God who knows God. So depending on your picture of God, it fills up the content of what fear is. The fear of the Lord is to truly know him. And when you know him and you know what he is like, then this fear is not a terror, but it's something else entirely. If you think of God as obey or else, then fearing God is the natural response in the terror regard. But if you think of God as someone who always wants what is best for us, then the fear of the Lord is a reverence founded on the delight that we have such a God to honor, respect, reverence, and take seriously. I really like that one. The fear of the Lord means to simply take him seriously. The lesson will expand on that if we go to number four, taking God seriously. Is there another way to put that? The author of the lesson suggests that a good way to describe the fear of God in more contemporary terms is living a God-centered life. Do you agree with that definition? Does that make sense to you? Living a God-centered life. Is that a more contemporary version of saying fear God? Larry? The simple answer is yes, but I'll explain. 
I do think that the altar's paraphrase or version of how he does uh, Proverbs 8.13 is another way of saying the same thing, is that if you hate evil, it's probably difficult to not live a godly type life. I can't imagine a God-fearing person constantly doing wrong from the standpoint of righteousness wrong. Just saying all God really wants is you to be reverent and live a godly-centered life. Christ makes that statement quite clear that people that are separated are the people who did the right thing and the people who did the wrong thing. And the people who did the wrong thing said, hey, we showed up at church. And he said, yeah, but we didn't really have a friendship. You didn't do the right thing. So, yes. All right, Henry. Thank you. And I'm sorry, I won't agree because I don't feel that actually is a good description. That's just some adjectives in there. But what does it mean to live a God-centered life? I have heard lately a lot of people that claims to be believers of God acting with hatred and showing no respect for others and feeling superior just because they believe that they are acting God-likely. So we need to define what that means to live a God-centered life. I had a friend, he was an atheist, openly, completely against religion, and he was the person closer to God that I have ever known. He will never accept that, but his behavior, the way that he was living for others, was an absolute reflection of what I know God to be. And he will refuse to be living a God-centered life in the way that we define it. Well, if it's an atheist, maybe he rejected God because God didn't live up to his values. Or at least the God that we Christians portray (laughs) to be. Yes. So sometimes a person becomes an atheist because they're moving closer to the God of the Bible. You know, that's a possible example. Michael? I find it much easier to live life with the notion that there is a God who is concerned with my welfare, my happiness, and my being. Now, I try to differentiate between happiness and contentment in the the sense that Trying to be perfectly happy, I think, is unachievable in this life. But I am contented with who I am. And to a large measure, when I say God-centered, that means, first of all, being kind to people around me. And most importantly, to my wife. I try to tell her every single day. In fact, I do tell her every single day that I love her. And I sometimes say that on multiple occasions. And I try to demonstrate that love by being kind to her. And the same with other people with whom I come in contact. I've started doing something, I started this about three or four years ago, just seeing young children with their parents, like in a grocery store. And I would stop and look at them and say, this is very kind of you, young man, to take your parents with you to go shopping and see what reactions they get. Generally, the reactions you get from the parents is a smile. And that is rewarding in and of itself. And I think that's part of having a God-centered life to trying to spread a little happiness and contentment with other people. I think the concept of a God-centered life, and I think Henry makes a good point, it, it maybe doesn't have the specifics, the definitions that are helpful. But one thing I would notice is what you center your life on is what you spend your time on, what you think about, 
when there's nothing else to do. We can center our lives around a lot of things. We can center it around money. We can center it around pleasure. Some people center their lives around power, getting it and using it. Some people center their lives around sports, others music, others entertainment. So I think the center of our life would tend to be what we think about when we have no reason to be thinking about anything at all. In other words, what's the default in your life? Where does your mind tend to turn when you're not necessarily directing it? And that's the center of focus, I think, consciously or unconsciously for many lives. Lou? There's a statement in Mount of Blessings that I just love. And it's something to the effect that God didn't say, strive to let your light shine. He just said, let it shine. And I think it's real easy to forget that we don't have to strive. We just have to connect and let the Holy Spirit shine through us. That's the light. And it's a result of the relationship with God and the invitation and our willingness to surrender to Him every day. So I think it's easy to, to focus sometimes on how we should be or what God would require, when really that's all a result of a loving relationship as our picture of God, our loving God, continues to expand. All right, Sherry? Some of the most dangerous people in the world live God-centered lives. I think that it depends so much on who you believe God to be and what kind of God you are becoming like. I think that's crucial because just having a God-centered life can make you a very dangerous, unsafe person. I would imagine uh, Osama bin Laden would be an example of a God-centered life. You know, he was praising God every time he gave another terrorist screed, etc. So, um, but it even comes closer to home than that. Yeah. Oh yeah. You can bring it as close as you want. All right, Larry. You can be sincere and sincerely believe you're going the right way and still end up in the wrong location. If you ignore the signs on the freeway, you will not get off at the right off ramp. It is not possible mentally to have a God-centered life and behave the way Osama bin Laden did or the way people that we're trying to describe here as Christian who are doing the wrong thing. They don't have a God-centered life. I guess it would be God-centered in the sense of a certain picture of God, because if you genuinely believe that your God-directed mission is to eliminate his enemies, I think the point here is well taken, that you can be God-centered, but centered on the wrong kind of God with the wrong kind of message. All right, Dan. I'm going to refer back to something in Graham and then evolve from that. Graham used to speak about servant or friends, and I think we're all acquainted with that. I sort of translated that to friends as others first and servants as rules first. And I'm interested in prediction models. And I think one of the things that rules people will use when available is force or coercion or whatever other ways they have of getting their way. But ultimately, it's quite different than what others first will do. Because I think others first believe in altruism, and they believe in friendships. And I think in that milieu, force is totally not utilized. And so I think that depending on what your basic philosophy is, it leads to very, very different places. And so I think a person like Osama bin Laden, accepted the wrong philosophy on life, 
the wrong worldview, and it led him to predictable ends or force and coercion. He saw that as the right thing to do for him because he had gone down the wrong path. And I think that's why it's so important that we are careful about what kind of philosophy we accept. And I'm always thankful to Graham that he gave me the illustration of servants and friends, because I think that's really a very nice analogy. Well, this has been a very, very enlightening discussion on the fear of God. I think we touched on a few points here that I've never heard before, but I think was very helpful. It's one of the challenging concepts, isn't it? Because of the nature of English language, it's hard for people to really get their head around what it is that this first angel is actually saying. But I think that our conversation has brought a great deal of light to that. Let's move to the next item in number five, the giving glory to God. And what does it mean to give glory to God? While you think about it, let's take a look at a text or two, and then I'll come back to you. First Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. All right. It's interesting. This word doesn't use the word glory. uh, So I probably wouldn't have brought this text in at this point, but the lesson does. And I think the reason is simply this. When it says you are the temple of God, it's not talking about bodies. It's not saying you, singular, are the temple of God. It's saying you, plural, are the temple of God. Another weakness of the English language, that the plural and the singular of you are identical and therefore sometimes confusing. So it's saying you are the temple of God, and if anyone destroys that temple, God will destroy him. What's the context? 1 Corinthians 3. Does anybody remember? What has Paul been talking about in the letter up until that point? He's been talking about factions in the church, groups fighting with each other, each claiming to have the right place, the right understanding. And Paul is saying the very disunity there is destroying the temple. Now, where does the word temple come from? In biblical usage, of course, you have the Old Testament temple, and Solomon's temple, Zerubbabel's temple, Moses' tabernacle, etc. But in the New Testament, Jesus becomes the temple. He's the one that says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again, meaning his own body. Jesus' body was a temple for the Shekinah glory of God, which was within. So for the New Testament, the temple is Jesus, but it's also wherever Jesus is. And so it uses temple language for heaven, for the body, and also for the church. Where two or three are gathered together, there I am in the midst of them. So one way to glorify God is the relationships we have among ourselves. When our relationships with one another reflect the kind of relationship that God has always sought with us, uh, that brings glory to God. When we relate to others the way God is related to us, It brings glory to God. So one definition of bringing God glory is we bring him glory in the way we treat other people and the kind of relationships we have within the church and I'd suggest even outside the church. All right, Livius? I was thinking of Moses when he asked God to show him his glory and he put him up uh, in the cleft of the rock and his 
passed by and he said the lord descended in a cloud and stood there proclaimed the name of the lord the lord merciful and gracious slow to anger and bounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin and i think we show god's glory or we give god's glory when we allow these qualities to flow through us to others like you mentioned when we are in relationship and we exhibit these characteristics to others we're modeling christ basically and so i I think that's kind of what it means what i think it means to give god glory hey thank you i just like daniel to think about something and if you want to speak to it a little bit later that would be great but in talking about divisions in the church as undermining god's glory etc as a church leader how much dissent how much disagreement can happen within an organization without it becoming detrimental Obviously, we don't want no disagreement. We don't want no other voices because that's the way that we correct each other. But I'm just curious what your thoughts are from your newfound experience on to what degree, when does dissent in the church become detrimental and when is it an asset? Because we don't want to read 1 Corinthians 3 as if anytime there's disagreement in the church, we are undermining the glory of God. So in practical terms, that can be a difficult one to get right. All right, I'll check in with you later if you have some thoughts on that. Henry. I will answer this last question first, my opinion about the dissent and disagreement, and then I will give the example that I have from the Bible about how do we glorify God or bring glory to Him. I think that disagreement should be welcome, should be encouraged when it is with the purpose of learning. When we are trying to discover, that is beautiful because that's the only way that we will get in order to move forward. When somebody is letting me see a different perspective. But when we are using dissent to create division, to not talk to the other person, to put blame and say, you are wrong and I am right, then that's detrimental because there is no intention to learn. I am imposing my view. And that is not welcome or healthy. Now, with regards how do we bring glory to God, I will just refer to the Gospel of John in chapter 17. We can read the whole chapter, and Jesus talks about how he brought glory to his Father. But especially verse 4, Jesus says, I have brought your glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. And this is very important. This is Jesus way before his crucifixion saying that he has already completed the work that was given to him. So when he has completed the work without even dying, means that his entire life has been a revelation of that glory. And verse 6, I have revealed you to those who you gave to me. That's the revelation. That's how we bring glory to God, revealing him the way that Jesus revealed him. All right. Thank you, John. In the light of cosmic conflict, as in the first two chapters of Job, when we give God glory, we say what is right about God, as Job did. Daniel, would you care to comment on the question I threw your way? Yes, let me pick it up from what just John said, that giving glory to God means putting God first in everything. And that means maintaining the commitment even when we fail to maintain the performance or the standard. 
So in the context of Job, of course he serves you because you bribe him or you because you scare him. And most of the religion throughout the centuries was about bribing people, either with the idea of heaven or reward or scaring them with hell. And just as I mentioned, seeing these 3,000 young people and the struggles they face in today's world, it's so easy to give up on God and religion just because you have a skewed picture and a picture which is more Jonathan Edwards, you know, that in God's sight you are this terrible insect that he can't stand while he looks at you with pity and understanding and hope. So give glory to God is that you don't give up even if you are not able to live up to the standards that you understand that God requires. And because that gives him glory. If we only seek him because of what we get out of it or out of our relationship, we don't appreciate that with our human relationships. So why we think or assume that God would be pleased and happy with that? Now, coming back to the question that you raised, it seems that what is the disagreement? What is the result of this agreement? Is it the result of the processing? Because if it's a different processing, then our variety can be an enhancing factor. God knew that you cannot reach all of humanity with one gospel. And every time the church tried to create one gospel out of four, it was a disaster. So it's so easy to take Paul's words that you should be all thinking the same, meaning that there should be no differences from the way I am thinking. And then you ask, okay, Paul, so how was your thinking in line with Peter or with James? And you discover that "Mm, actually it wasn't. But it's once we start demonizing those who think differently and say, you know, my way is God's way, that's when the problem starts. So the reason why God put us in the community so that we can enlighten each other's blind spots and we can enhance each other's vision and see things that we would not see on our own, because it takes more than one perspective to comprehend the reality. And that's why we have four Gospels, not one. Words of wisdom from experience. Appreciate that very much. Lou? That's why we don't call it a creed. Isn't that why? So that we don't get cemented into a certain mold that growth is very important. You probably might remember the story, I'm sure you do, that Graham used to tell about he and I think it was Heppenstall that played golf together. And they used to have these theological disagreements, the very energetic disagreements. And then Graham said, you know, I think when we get to heaven, we're going to say, okay, God, who was right? And he's apt to say, you were both wrong. (laughs) So I think just being flexible, keeping an open mind, seeking God, and know that we don't have it all right. And being humble about it is probably a good way to grow. I think when Hebenstahl and Maxwell come before God, he will say, let's make it a threesome and we can talk about it. <laughs> yes. Well, a couple of observations. First of all, I noticed that for both fear God and give him glory, at different points, people said basically put God first. That both of those, in a sense, are similar in that the call is to make God and the things of God primary in our lives. Not necessarily the picture of God we may have, but the true picture of God, make that first in our lives, and we will end up in the place where we should be. And the second point is that glorifying God in this corporate sense is basically treating other people the way God has treated us. And I think of the parable of the man who owed 10,000 talents and how he appeals to the king and says, just give me time and I'll pay it all back. And he's freely forgiven. And then when a man comes along with a relatively paltry debt and uses the same words, 
just give me some time and I'll pay you all back. Uh, instead of responding the way the king responded to him, he puts the man in jail and, and seeks to get every penny out of him. And Jesus basically says that we are to treat one another the way God treats us. Look at each other in the light of how God has looked at us. And so that's glorifying God relationally is to treat other people the way God has treated us. But there's more. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, we have another aspect to glorifying God. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. All right, so here it says your body is the temple of God. Wherever Jesus is, becomes a temple in the New Testament. And if there's such a thing as Christ in you, which is referenced in several places, Christ in you, the hope of glory, that makes your body a temple. And it says you're not your own. You're bought with a price. In other words, you're a temple because God owns the building, so to speak, and it's dedicated to him. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So everything that we do, not just how we treat people, but everything that we do uh, with our bodies can either glorify God or do otherwise. And so we're encouraged here to glorify God in some very practical, personal ways. And uh, 1 Corinthians 10 actually spells out one of those. 1 Corinthians 10.31. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. All right. So, eating and drinking can glorify God. I suppose you might say, how is God? Is God better glorified by someone in an alcoholic stupor or someone of sound mind? So it is possible to drink things and consume things that cause us not in any way to glorify God. And especially, of course, Paul is speaking to Christians. So when you take the name of God, then everything that you do becomes a reflection of your picture of God in the minds of other people. And they will judge God based on what they see of God in you. So I would define glorifying God as making God look good to those around us. What we eat and drink, how we treat one another, etc. It can make God look good or it can damage his reputation. Paul has one more thing to say about it in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. People have always been willing to make sacrifices in order to please God or to win his favor. And Paul here says the only sacrifice that really matters is your heart and your life. Offer yourself to God, your hands, your feet, your mind, offer them all to God, and this will bring glory to him. So, fear God and give him glory, number seven. It's rather foreign language in today's world, as we've noted, particularly the fear God part, but I think to give him glory is also a bit ambiguous in the average person's mind. So, if you could write a script for the first angel, how would you express in contemporary terms what the first angel indicates will be the first message to the world? 
So if you were writing the script for the angel to give the final message to the world, how would you phrase it? All right, Chris is going to take this on. Appreciate it. Go ahead. Just to start with, I just think the fear of God has to include love and honor and respect. I couldn't do it with just one word, but I would make sure that love, honor, and respect was part of it. Okay. Ari. The idea of love that I have was changed by reading Scott Peck in The Road Less Traveled. And he uses the concept that love is the desiring of the spiritual development and maturity in the one loved. In other words, God's love for us isn't just like we love chocolate or we love our spouses. It's a much deeper, and from that, we need to understand the deeper concept that when we love back, my love for you as a friend and yours for me includes within it the desire for both of us to continue to have spiritual maturity. And once I got that idea set in my mind, it began to change how I saw all of my relationships with people around me. So I think it's very important that when we define all of these things, that we really look to the godly model of what these words mean and try to use the correct meaning for them. Daniel? I would say be humble enough to admit there is more to life, more to reality than your own opinion. Mm. If there is no respect, not much learning takes place. And because all of us have limited perspective, give God respect means admit there is more to reality than what you just see. And then you can learn, then you can grow, then God can take you out of the box, then God can teach you things that you have no clue that they exist. You can be a blessing to somebody else and others can be a blessing to you. As I hear that, I'm thinking about an experience of my own the last couple of years. Some leaders in the world church wanted Loma Linda to start a center for understanding world religions, one to help Adventists better understand these religions. And we began thinking that that would sort of be a Loma Linda-centered kind of a thing. But over time, the board began to say, we need to know the voices from the community. And so they asked me to reach out to key people in each of the world religions. And in any given meeting, we can have as many as eight different world religions, uh, only one of them being Christianity. And it's absolutely amazing the conversations that have occurred within that group and the wisdom and perspective that we've heard from Hindus and Muslims and Sikhs and Jews and so on. People do not think the same. I think of what Daniel said, you know, there's four Gospels. People do not think the same. And we may be surprised at what God is doing in many, many places. I've often said God is at work in every religion, as is Satan. That's the great controversy story. But if God is at work, to understand where God is at work in other people's lives is critical. But it's really taught me the limits of my self-perception, that I kind of know everything. Uh, I'm surprised at the wisdom and the insight that people representing some of these other traditions have. And Loma Linda, I guess, is the ideal place to have conversations among them, which probably is pretty rare in today's world. So fear God and give him glory means to, as Daniel just put it, be humble enough to realize that you can't do it on your own and you don't know it all on your own. All right. Is this Bob? I reverence God and give honor to Kim who created you and the whole world. 
Mm-hmm. Could I bring up something too? Go right ahead. That goes right with what Bob's saying, the creator. In our retirement, we've had the opportunity to hear some courses and documentary. Like right now, we're listening to the guide to birding in North America. And I've listened to A Plant Science, an introduction to botany by a well-known, a well-respected professor. Wonderful explanations and marvelous designs in creation. And it just floors me that they give God no credit that all this wisdom and even on these beautiful new documentaries like on BBC Earth that you can see and the amazing things they're getting in photography of the creation of this world. And they keep saying that it was evolved and it's just impossible. They would never expect like the new telescope to arrive and just evolve up in space. And yet these things we see designed on Earth, like even the albatross with a wingspan of over 12 feet, the wandering albatross has a special ducts that excrete salt, high saline, so it can drink water from the ocean. And there's no way that can evolve. It would never survive its high saline blood content if it had to evolve it. It couldn't do it by accident. And I saw a building go up beside me right here over a year. And the involvement of this building and so much, so much work in every step, it could not evolve. And yet we see this miracles around us now in such photography and documentary. Could this be a factor? I don't know how, but to give God the credit and the first angel of the creator, it just seems like Satan's working very hard to erase that. I hear you saying that you don't have enough faith to believe that all this could have happened by chance. That's correct. All right. Libius. Well, if I could say one thing, it would be to be other-centered. The first angel says, worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. When I look at nature, I see an interdependence about on everything. Everything depends on something else. You look at a coral reef, everyone shares, and all members in that reef have something to give to the other. And it's a whole ecosystem. And so when I look at principles of being a merciful and gracious, slow to anger, forgiving iniquity and transgression in my brother and sister, those are other-centered qualities. So I would say that to be other-centered is what the message there is, one of the messages. <laughs> I think if Ellen White had heard you say that, she would have jumped out of her seat and raised both hands. <laughs> <laughs> Praise because the Lord. That's pretty much the theme of chapter one of Steps to Christ, isn't it? So the other-centeredness of the universe, God is inviting us in the first angel to simply get with the program to align ourselves with what we can see in the larger universe as so many things dependent on others and often giving, you know, the flowers giving off perfume, which far as we know, doesn't help them any, but it blesses so many others. And this sort of a symbiotic relationship is something that encourages us to be loving the way God is loving. All right, John. In the context of Revelation, the message from the angel to fear God and give him glory is not just an appeal to worship God. It is in a background with regards to the sealing of the chosen people of God and the marking of those who are against God. And it's a final appeal of God to 
come out of her, Babylon, lest you partake of her plagues. So it's not a simple matter of an appeal to worship God and to fear God. It is an appeal from God to man to save, make the right choice. All right, Larry. Make God your first desire because he is now ready to grant you your deepest desire and keep your relationship with him who has made everything you hold dear. Excellent. Appreciate that. Henry. Considering that this letter was sent to Christians, to the churches, then with that background, I think that the message here for that angel was not necessarily trying to convince them that God was the creator, because if they were Christians, they already believed that. So it has to be something, it has to has something to do with what type of creator they thought he was. And that's why he needs to make that statement. So I will write, if that was for a contemporary church today, I will rewrite it in this way. I will say, if you don't believe that God created all of the human life the way that we know it today, even those that you may not think are aligned or were created by God, lesbians, homosexuals, gays. Let me tell you that God has been willing to sit in trial, go to court, put himself to be judged. So we can know, we can see who he is willing to love, who he is willing to give his life for. But if you are willing to go to that court and witness that trial, be aware, you may end up loving him and revealing him. Excellent. Appreciate that. Alyssa? I think the assignment was, how would you express fear God and give him glory in contemporary terms? So I would like to make a proposal. Love God and love others as he loves you. Mm-hmm. The restatement of the central command of Jesus, isn't it? All right, Larry. I have a question. The concept of the seven churches made me think of that, and I don't know that it directly ties to this, but maybe it does. It's something that I've never heard much about. But there were seven churches, the seven lamps, seven spirits. Is part of the story in the dealing with the creation, the week of creation, is there any link to that in the revelation because of the continual use of seven at the beginning of the book? Yeah, scholars have wrestled quite a bit with why seven, and obviously creation week is one of the better possibilities that one would look at there. Certainly creation is in view, mentions the tree of life, for example, would be one aspect. The trumpets and the bowls seem to be reversals of creation, taking some of the elements of creation and self-destructing them etc. So that certainly is one of the options. Some have suggested that Sabbath is a subtle central issue in the book and that seven might be hinting toward that. We'll probably be looking at that in a few weeks as we get further into this series of lessons as to where and how one would approach the Sabbath in the book of Revelation. But the number seven is clearly dear to John. It appears, I believe, 54 times in the book. There are a lot more subtle ones. For example, lamb appears 28 times, which is four times seven as a reference to Jesus. Uh, So there's a lot of 
overt and covert references to the number seven. And I would argue that the book is structured in seven parts, the center of which is chapters 12 to 14 that we're focusing on this quarter. The center of the center is the three angels' messages. So you're in, I think, the heart of the book of Revelation's message. All right, Julie? Yeah, after I looked at this and kept trying to reword it, I realized, no, I, I probably wouldn't change how it says it because every single phrase there we've gotten such a great deal of information from. We've got so many different ideas of how that means to different people. So fear God, we've talked about glorifying him and all the different definitions of that. This is the thing about God's word. He has this way of putting something so succinctly together and you say, wait a minute, what does that mean? And when you pull it apart, it means so many different things all going in one direction. The other thing I wanted to connect it to is the verse before that this has to do with the everlasting gospel. And to me, in a way, it's saying, here's the everlasting gospel. This not just the portion of what Jesus did on earth, which I think was extremely important, but that whole big picture of God and what he has done to connect with the human race. And it's almost like saying, pay attention to this, because in the process of paying attention, you will give glory to God and you will worship him because this is an incredible thing. And this is to the whole world, the world that has not really had God particularly in their focus. Attention is so difficult for all of us. We're so distracted. I am anyway. I have a hard time. I can pay attention to something for a little while, but maintaining attention is really difficult. And I think this is really pointing out that now more than ever, we have to see that whole God picture, that big picture of what God is doing for us. And that will lead to a great deal of glorifying of him in our lives, both by what we do and by what we say. Yeah, I fully agree with you, Julie, that the way that it was placed in scripture is intentional, purposeful, and very fruitful. So the purpose of this exercise wasn't necessarily to retranslate or something like that, but simply say, if you stood on a street corner and said, fear God and give him glory, most people would just scratch their heads and keep walking. Is there a way to arrest them? And I think, you know, just looking at this last one from Larry, I mean, that's just a real zinger, I think. Make God your first desire because he's ready to grant your deepest desire. I mean, that's punchy, short, and I think it's language that the younger generation would gravitate to. Uh, Maybe Ashley would like to speak to that and give us a useful perspective on it. But the language of scripture may go over the top for many people, but if we can translate it in a way that really connects with what they're thinking, that can make the gospel more powerful. The gospel is eternal, yet it is also relevant to specific situations, uh, depending on the need that people have when they come to it. Michael, and then if Ashley would like to speak to that, you'd be welcome to. Well, just to follow up to a comment made by Julie, I've struggled with this all my life, is to start seeing a prayer and immediately my mind starts wandering off on other things. You know, and Teresa of Avila, who was a great mystic, said that she had the same problem. She couldn't just say a simple formalized prayer without her mind wandering off to some other subject. And I don't know why that is, but I'm still bothered by it to this very day. And I thoroughly enjoy coming here and listening to diverse comments because we're struggling to understand the best we can the message, the various messages stated in the book of Revelation. All right. Ashley, would you have to comment? Yeah, I think the language can be a big barrier for many. They often aren't brought up with a perspective where maybe there's a different way to see things and that there are groups of people that do see things differently. I haven't always understood why exactly that some people seem to maybe only remember the worst experience 
it makes sense in some ways because trauma is very memorable. So maybe you only remember the bad things sometimes, unfortunately. <laughs> but I guess in my view, I've always seen, I think, the Bible in a more nuanced way and that it can be read in different ways. And if you can be open to that, I think there's ways of making sense of some of the language that isn't maybe as comforting when you first read it in a literal way, which is, I think, in some ways what some of the generation has been taught to do, or maybe the only exposure they got to the Bible before they sort of tuned out to it was at an earlier age where you do just have more of a literal understanding to it. So yeah, I don't know. I think there's a big role for some of my, I hope, peers to play that have had better experiences to talk about it more and share that there is other ways to looking at it and that you don't have to throw like the baby out of the bathwater and that fear can maybe take on different meanings. It could be respect rather than be afraid. <laughs> when I used to teach ministers, we used to wrestle with this quite a bit. And I think the generation before me for sure. Their idea of evangelism was an expert in the front speaking in absolute certain terms. And I can remember some students resisting in class when I suggested vulnerability, humility, openness as being evangelistic tools. I said, no, you're not going to convince anybody unless you're absolutely sure. And I said, well, I think the younger generation, the person that's absolutely sure is clearly wrong because they don't know enough to realize their limits. You know? The younger generation recognizes that people who speak proudly and boastfully about what they know usually aren't taken seriously. And so if we don't adjust our approach to the needs of the current generation, uh, they won't be listening. So I appreciate all of you and all of this. I can tell you, I'm writing a commentary on Revelation. I've already done a draft of Revelation 14, 6, and 7, but I'm going to be listening to this one and rewriting because I think this was the richest study of fear God and give him glory I've ever heard. And I want to make sure I get some of these things and put them on more permanent record. So thank you everyone for this amazing, enriching story. Let's pray. Lord, we are truly grateful you have been with us today. As we've wrestled with fear God, give him glory, I think we've all had something of a sense of what these things mean. But our conversation together has been so much richer than what we came with. We're grateful for that, Lord. We sense your spirit with us, and we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.